Uh, we come now to a passage of scripture that makes me feel inadequate as a preacher. Actually, I'm always inadequate, but sometimes I'm more aware of that than others, and this is one of those times. The verse, uh, and it's only one verse this morning, that we'll think on is about God. And it names several attributes of God. And I cannot cause you to feel the greatness and the awesomeness of God. But God can do that. And we will trust him together to do that in our hearts this morning. That he would work in our hearts as we just think simply and yet profoundly about who God is. As, it's pre- as he's presented in this one verse. It's an amazing, amazing verse of scripture. It challenges us to think about God. And it challenges our conception of who God is. It actually forces us to break free of our small little ideas about God. And face God for who he is. Even though when we face him for who he is, we find it a little bit unsettling. And we find it um, impossible to actually put our head around it all. And that's true and right because he is bigger than us. You know, uh, in, in the Old Testament, in Psalm 50, you don't have to turn there. I'll quote one verse briefly. But Psalm 50, you've heard me refer to that several times in, in various sermons. There was a problem in Israel. They had a couple problems there. Their, their thinking was wrong, and they, their, then, therefore their actions were wrong. And God was taking them to task in Psalm 50. He, he, he got their attention. He talked about judging the world. <clears throat> then he talked about judging them, God's people. And he got to verse 21, and he said a prof- something very profound. A profound thought. He says, you thought that I was just like you you thought that i was just like you and that was at the root of much of israel's problem they were they were not handling life right they were they were not they were not behaving right they weren't making good decisions and and part of the problem was is that their conception of god was too close to being the same as us And part of what God was doing in Psalm 50 was shattering their conception of God and saying, I'm I'm who I am, and I'm not like you. Well, my prayer is that that as we look at verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, that not only will we sense the greatness of God and see him a little more clearly for who who he actually is, but my prayer is also that this passage will encourage and strengthen you. For I believe that, that as we see God for who he really is, we find great strength. Even though it, it unsettles us a bit, then when we push through that, we find strength and encouragement. Now, you remember, turn there, if you haven't already, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. It's on page 1410, if you're using one of our Bibles there. You remember the context is that Paul has talked about the, the great an awful sinfulness of human beings, and he's included himself into that, that, there, that we break God's law, we run the wrong way, we desire the wrong things, we do the wrong things. And then, yet, he then speaks 
about the God who saves, how God then comes into this bunch of sinful people and he actually delivers us out of the mess that we've gotten ourselves in. And then he, remember, he used himself as an example, saying, I'm the, I'm the foremost of all the sinners, and yet God put his mercy on me. And it magnified the mercy and the patience of God, because Paul was saying, if, if, if God was merciful to me, well, he'll be merciful to you. And, and, and if God is merciful to me, then that just proves that salvation is not something that we earn. It's just something that we, he, he sheds on us by his mercy and his grace. And then after he speaks about all that, he comes to verse 17 and it's as if he, he just has, he can't help himself. It's like the, the one song that was being sung. How can I help but sing praises to your name? He just has to break out in this, in this worship. And he says, now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 I was tempted to preach on that last word. Amen. You know, I found, I, I found one of the old Puritans preached on amen and he had 26 points to his sermon. But I'll spare you. I won't do that. Instead, let's just look at this because it's, it's, he's just naming attributes of God. In his worship, he's worshiping God here. And he's naming them. There's, I want us to think through five attributes of God that are here. First of all, God is king. God is king. Paul, the apostle, only refers to to God as king twice in all of his writings. And both of them are in this letter. The other reference is in chapter 615 where he says, He who is is the blessed... And only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king. And there in verse 6, he's, he's used also the word sovereign. He's the sovereign, the king. It's interesting that, remember, as we've just said, that Paul has just finished describing this incredible occurrence in his own life that here he was the foremost of sinners and yet God's mercy was shed on him so here he was determined in him in his own self to do evil and yet God the king the sovereign one took him and turned him around God is in charge he's the king he has authority he's the king he is reigning and ruling he is, he is moving the events of human history in the direction he has chosen to move them. You know, we Americans haven't been friendly to kingship. I mean, we got, we got, our, we got our birth as a country, right? We, we threw off the king. Not everybody, not everybody can say that. So we don't like kings. Kings. Kings, a king, the word king is something that we read about in history books or in, we read about other countries, but we Americans don't have a king and we don't want a king. We made that clear. But God is a king and we're his children and he's a king and kings have thrones. The throne is a symbol 
of his authority over everyone under the throne. And he sits on that throne. He's the king. He makes decisions. And he has the power to back up those decisions. And he rules. And he sovereignly overrules the affairs on earth. Our God is a king. Charles Spurgeon once said this when he was thinking about the sovereignty and the kingship of our God. And I couldn't say it better, so I just want to, I'll read this to you. He said, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his treasury to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed and scorned, and then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love, but it is the God upon the throne that we love to preach, and it is God upon his throne whom we trust. Amen? Our God is a king. And we can trust this king. This king who is in control. I'm I'm getting ready to use a word that is a theological word. I'm not sure that I've ever used this word in eight years of preaching here. I might have. I don't. But I don't actually. I don't think that I have. Partially because I try not to use words like this. These are theological words that put people in categories. And the problem with those words is that people have their own ideas about it. So they don't actually communicate very well. But I'm going to take a risk and just use it because I'm using it personally. When life goes wrong and things are out of control and things are happening to me that I don't like and wish it was otherwise... There are times where I turn and I look to my dear wife and I say, I'm so glad I'm a Calvinist. I don't know what Calvinist means to you. It might be a bad thing. You know, that's why I don't use words like that. But what I mean when I use that word in a context like that is, I am so glad that I believe in the God who is in control. Amen. That at the bottom of it all, 
even when we wade through the unanswered questions about why God, and we, we get through all that, we get not to the will of a human being, but we get to the will of a God who is king. That's the rock bottom of my salvation. And that's the rock bottom of my comfort and my help as I go through life. And life brings to me things that I don't like. I am so glad that God is sovereign, that he is king, and that he is ruling, and he is in control. And Paul says, God is king. Now to the king. Now to the king, he says. Now to the king. Well, then, secondly... God is eternal. That's what he says there in verse 17. Now to the king, eternal. Oh, this will be easy to explain. Eternal. Uh, It could be translated now to the king of ages. King of the ages. It reminds me of Psalm 90, verse 2. Listen to this. He's speaking to, to God. He says, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Amen? From eternity past to eternity future and before and after, (laughs) if you can say it that way, he's saying, you are God. You are God. You see, God is bigger than time. God is not inside of time. Oh man, this, this makes your brain hurt when you start thinking about this. But remember how the Bible starts? I don't know how you say it in Kisandawe. That'd be good. But it says, in the beginning, God. Amen? Before there was a beginning of anything that we know, there was God. Before time ever began to be, to be. God is. Remember his name that he finally gave to Moses? I am that I am. It's in the present tense. He, he is. God is. Now this won't work. I have an illustration. I already know it won't work. But I'm going to do it anyway. Because, I, because we're talking about eternity. How do, you, how, do you, how do you talk about God being eternal? Well, imagine... Imagine this piece of paper, but then it it doesn't end, okay? So this piece of paper just keeps going in all four directions. And that's 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 eternity. And then and then on that piece of paper, I just drew all of human history from the beginning to the end, whenever that is. All of time. When time started until it ends but it's still in the paper and the paper's bigger and it keeps going and then get this and god's holding the piece of paper he's not in the piece of paper he's not in that he's bigger than all of it and all the physicists and the and the astronomers have fun and there's minds that are way better than mine that can think it even farther than this but all i'm trying to illustrate is that God is eternal. I love it. The way A.W. Tozer said this, he said, the mind looks backward 
in time till the dim past vanishes and then turns and looks into the future till thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion. And God is at both points unaffected by either. I love it. There was a time, if you could say it that way, when God was all that there was. Only there was no time. It's just God. Now, as you think about God like that, maybe the same thing will happen to you that happens to me. This, this week, as I've been meditating on this verse, it's just pulled me up short at times. And, and, um, but this thought has come to me. And I don't even know exactly how to explain it, but maybe you sense it even in your own heart. That when you think of God as the eternal God, it makes your problems more bearable. That's what I found happening in my own heart. It makes my own problems more bearable. When I'm, when I'm thinking of this awesome God as the one who I'm related to, and I call on for help, and, but he is eternal. He's outside of all of this, and yet has chosen to come down in it. It reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. Listen to this. And after you have suffered for a little while... I love that. It may seem long to me, but it's actually a little. Listen as the verse goes. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then he couldn't hold it back any longer. And again, he says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. My problems are more bearable when the God to whom I call and the God on whom I rest is eternal God. And it also makes his kingship more trustworthy. Some there's there are kings. There's been lots of kings. We still have kings in the earth. But you know what happens to them? They die. Or somebody knocks them off or, you know, one thing happens or another and the kingdom collapses or disintegrates. But not this king, because he says now to the king eternal. Amen. It's not going to change. And he is trustworthy. Thirdly, God, excuse me, God is unchangeable. It says, now to the king eternal, immortal, immortal. Well, uh, I got out the dictionary and I looked up the word mortal. I mean, I thought I knew what it meant, but I wanted to check. Okay, what does mortal mean? Talk about encouraging. It says, subject to death, destined to die. There you go. That was cheery. But that's what mortal means. Mortal means we're subject to death. That's what mortal means. We're going to die. And by the way, if you haven't faced up to it, that's you. That's me. We are going to die. But God is immortal. He will not die. He cannot die. All, li- all life is from him. It's his create life itself is something that he created. And so 
But wrapped up in that word immortal is not just the idea that he will not die, but it's also the idea that he will not change. You see, he is incorruptible. He is unchangeable. It's interesting in Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, Paul is talking about sinful humanity. And it says, now professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. So it's using the word incorruptible, the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You see, he's, he's saying that in idolatry, in religions that lift up idols, they make idols that are in the form of something else that they can see. And everything that they can see and look at, animals, other men, birds, reptiles, they look at them, but they are all corruptible. They're all mortal. Amen? So you make an image of something that will be, will be corrupted eventually. It'll rust or, or rot or fall apart, this idol will. Everything will. But God is not like that. You see, every image that is made in, an, in idolatry is of something that changes and can change for the worse. But God will not change for the worse. As a matter of fact, God will not change for the better. Because he's already better. Amen? He will not change. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 it says, For I the Lord do not change. I do not change. Now listen. This gives me great courage. And some of you aren't going to get what I'm saying at first. But listen. This fact gives me great courage. That I indeed can be forgiven of my sins. Why is that? Because it is the God who does not change that sent his son to the cross to substitute himself for you and me and sacrifice himself and take the justice that you and I deserved. He took it on himself and took it out of the way and mercy comes to me through Jesus Christ. Amen? And he does not change. He'll not change his mind. It might not, you know, 10,000 years from now in heaven, he might say, you know what, though? Cliff really was a jerk. I think I'm going to renege on that arrangement. He's not going to change. And you see, I'm not just making this up because I only read part of math of Malachi three, six. You want to hear the rest? He says, for I, the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob are not consumed. Amen. He says, your forgiveness is rooted in the fact that God doesn't change. And it goes on. Verse seven says from the days of your fathers, you have turned against my statutes And have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's saying, my way of mercy is there. And I will not change from it. Now repent. Put your faith in me and you will find mercy. He does not change. Amen. Are you glad? I am. But it also makes this this fact that God is unchangeable. It makes his eternal kingship more welcoming he is the king he is eternal 
These are transcendent ideas. These are, these are showing us how, how much other than us God is. And yet, He is unchanging, brings Him closer, for He has shown mercy in Jesus Christ. And so, this eternal King is more welcoming in my mind because He does not change. He will take me. He will take me if I turn to Christ. Well, fourthly, this is a great one. God is invisible. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, invisible. Everything that you can see with eye or telescope or microscope or neutron, electron microscopes, or deep space telescopes. It doesn't matter. Everything that you can see is created. But God is not created. He is not a creature. He created everything that you see. And he is other than his creation. He is invisible. He is not of this creation. He is beyond it. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God's attributes are invisible, his, and then he names a couple of them. He says, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. He's saying that we can look at creation and we can infer some things about the one who created it. That he's eternal and that he's divine and that he's powerful. But we can't actually see him. We're just seeing what he's made. <clears throat> then in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 it says about Christ that he is the image of the invisible God. When Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, came, he took upon himself human flesh and blood. And then we could see... In his humanity, we could see the way God is. We could see God's character, but we still couldn't see his essence in his eternal essence. We saw his, his deity in flesh. So what we're seeing in Christ is actually his humanity, but, but we see how he relates to us. God is invisible. It forces us to agree there with the writer in Job in verse 11, verse 7, where he says, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? And the answer is no. Amen? He is too, he is too big. God is invisible. I hope, <clears throat> I hope you don't think that God has a body. God does not have a body. Do you know that? Remember Psalm 50? You think that I was just like you. God does not have a body. The references in scripture to God's hand or his eye or whatever, those are figures of speech that are trying to communicate to us the way God is. He, he has no body. In John chapter 4, Jesus taught us that in verse 24, where he says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. If your, if your idea of God is that he has a body, you have a small, idea, you have a small God. <clears throat> because wherever his body ends, he ends. But the God of the scripture is, 
eternal, immortal, invisible. You know, it's interesting that this truth about God is tied to the second commandment in the Ten Commandments. Do you remember that? The first commandment was, you will, you will have no other gods. The second commandment, I'll read it to you from Exodus 20, is, You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the, under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There, we won't take a lot of time here on this, but, but God is invisible. And, and that is one reason, I think, that is behind his command that you do not use pictures or statues in your worship. First of all, you don't use pictures and statues of other things, animals or whatever, and worship them. Remember, Aaron made the golden calf and they worshiped there. Well, God isn't a calf. And, uh, and, and so, that misrepresents God, and you don't worship it as an idol. But if that's all the second commandment meant, then it's just a repetition of the first commandment. The first commandment was you have no other gods. The second one is, and even if you're trying to worship the one true God, you don't use idols in it. You use no pictures or statues to help you worship. Do you understand that? I'm debating whether I'm going to say the next thing. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. I I am, uh, okay. Well, I'm going to use my example, and and I'm, so I'm not making this normative for you, but I'm, I'm just, we're thinking together, okay? I don't like Jesus movies. Except there was one I liked. Ben-Hur. Serious. And why did I like Ben Hurd? Anybody know? You've got, you've got, oh, younger ones don't even, some of you, I was shocked one time when my daughter didn't know what Ben Hur was. You know, I thought, oh my word, how can you not? But then she's since watched it. Anybody know? About Jesus? What was it in that movie about Jesus? Do you remember? Yes. You never saw his face. I don't want to have anybody's face in my mind when I pray. I want no idol in my life. The second commandment says, and I'm not saying there's not a place for those movies. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in worship, in worship, we're not to use images because God is invisible. Amen. And one day I'm going to see the face of my Savior. And that's the face that I'm going to see and no other. God, our God, is invisible. But another thing about this truth is that this makes this eternal, welcoming king more awe-inspiring. Amen? Now unto the king, eternal, immortal invisible he is so so awe-inspiring and then lastly god is the one and only now unto the king and eternal immortal invisible the only god he's the he's the only god again genesis 1 1 in the beginning god he's the only one it didn't say gods 
He's a plurality in the sense that he's, he is a triune God. But there's no other God. There's one God. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Who is like him? And the question goes out over and over in the Old Testament. Who is like this God? And the answer is no one. No one or nothing is like God. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Who can you compare me to, God says, that's equal to me? There is no other. God is the one and only And this, my friend, this truth makes his eternal, welcoming, awe-inspiring kingship our necessity. There is no other. What other option do you have? In John chapter 6, Jesus had been teaching some very hard truths and people were beginning to leave. Some people who had kind of identified themselves as his followers, but now as things are getting a little tough, they're starting to, to drop off the back of the pack. It says there in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? He gave the invitation to his disciples to leave. <laughs> That's a different kind of invitation that we think of. He's given it the opposite. You can leave if you want. And you know what their answer was? Peter answered for all of them. Says Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Amen? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Those words are nowhere else. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They said to him, God is the one and only. We must take him as as he is. We must take him as he presents himself in the word and then and then deal with that. But really, who else will you call on? What other God is there? All the other gods are idols. All the other gods are creations of things of, of, of God. They're small. But our God is, is the king, and he's eternal, and he's unchanging. He's invisible, and he's the only God. And so we worship him. And the great thing, you know, again, Paul's amazement here is that this transcendent, great, awe-inspiring God had mercy on me. That's what Paul's saying. He just used himself as an example. I was the worst sinner of them all. He saved me. He delivered me out of it and has changed me. He even wants to use me. And he, and he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Our Father, we we lift up our voices. We exalt you. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord bless.